0: and the crowd beginning to pay its tribute to Andretti. The young man who came to this country at the age of 14, as an immigrant from Italy. He had driven racing cars even before he came over here. This was the one he wanted more than anything else in the world. And here it comes, Mario. The checkered flag of victory. He's done it. And look at this scene in the pit. to Great Minds and our guest today, and this is just the most extraordinary honor, is what I certainly think and many others, the greatest race car driver in the history of the sport, certainly here in America. Uh, He is the only driver to have won the Indianapolis 500, which he won in 1969, the Daytona 500, which he won in 1967, the Formula One Championship, He has won countless other races all around the world, and your very name, Mario, is a metaphor, which so many of us use to this day. If my kids are driving too fast, it's steady there, Mario Andretti. So our guest today is the incomparable Mario Andretti. Welcome, Mario. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Well, this is just a joy. So, Mario, there are so many places to start with you. Uh, And I want to go back and start with Alberto Ascari uh, in, I guess, a Grand Prix race in Monza in about 1954. Uh, Can you take us back there and what seeing that race and seeing Alberto meant to you and your twin brother, who also shared your passion for racing as a young boy
1: growing up in Italy? Yes, indeed, actually. Um, we were Aldo and I were just young teenagers. Uh, we just we became uh, just uh, totally uh, infatuated with with, with the Formula One, with the motor racing, which was very prominent uh, in the fifties in, in in Italy, uh, having Ferrari, Maserati, Alfa Romeo, uh, part of the protagonistic uh, the teams. And um, anyway. Um, and we had the opportunity to, uh, go to Monza, uh, to see the Italian Grand Prix at, at age 14, which is a year before we came to America. And I saw my absolute idol, Alberto Scari, who was current world champion for Ferrari race. Um, uh, he did not win actually a uh, Fonjo won Mercedes, but uh, nevertheless, he was fighting hard and, uh, And that's really when I always say when the mold was cast as far as the dream, the impossible dream that there seemed like at the time to become racing drivers and for sure, for sure, for sure, uh, there was no plan B from there on. And a few years
0: later, you and Aldo took an old Hudson Hornet and made your own race car.
1: Exactly, uh, two years after arriving in America at age 15, uh, two years later, age 17 with four other buddies, uh, we ventured into uh, building our own uh, modified stock car, you know to race locally, uh, a track in Nazareth to start with. And two years later, uh, our careers began. You know my career started at age 19 which was illegal by the way uh, to race uh, professionally at the time uh, you had to be 21. But uh, we had uh, a friend fudge uh, our license, uh, the date on our our license, the the birth date. And uh, so all of a sudden I was 21 and so was Aldo. And the biggest problem was to shake that date later on when, when I was 23, actually, on, on, on my license, I wanted to be 21. So, <laughs> in the eyes of the press, it's amazing that that, that just uh, haunted me for at least another 10, 15 years. You know, they, they were all confused. How old is he? Is he what? Is he uh, 25 or 23, you know, that type of thing?
0: Oh, my goodness. And your parents were supportive. I imagine, though, your mom must have gotten a few surprises from you and your brother.
1: Well, yes, indeed, uh, mom did. But uh, dad, uh, we we didn't dare tell dad that uh, we were racing uh, professionally because uh, uh, he was not a fan of the sport. And so all he knew about uh, the negatives of the sport, which uh, uh, were the fatalities. And uh, in those days, the sport obviously was not as nowhere near as safe as it is today. So uh, he as a parent, as a father, you know, he thought we, were, we would have been crazy and he, he possibly would have stopped us because, because uh, we were still under, we didn't want to take a chance. So my dad did not know for the full first season that we were racing until my brother Aldo got hurt. He was actually given his last rights that evening at the very last race of the season. In Hatfield, Pennsylvania, and that's how he found out that we were racing. Uh, which again, he thought he was vindicated to some degree, you know. Uh, like, uh, and and he was uh, appalled. He he could not deal with the fact that uh, we were. I was racing again the following year. Aldo took a sabbatical because of his injuries, but uh, I was racing again the following year, and had a tough time uh, accepting that. But as soon, then he, he started softening up and uh, he realized that uh, this was for real. This was just not a crazy idea from two young kids. And then, uh, of course, he started asking Aldo, how's Mario doing? And then when Aldo uh, resumed racing um, uh, two years later, uh, he, he would asking me, how's Aldo doing and so forth. Then he became the biggest fan. Amazing story. You
0: are so synonymous with Nazareth, Pennsylvania. And uh, there was also a dirt track there, as I recall, that you and Aldo discovered as young boys that you did not know about initially.
1: No, we had no idea what to expect. Uh, when we arrived here, it was actually in June 16, f- 1955. And uh, so you could see the racing season was in full swing. And uh, we arrived there on a Thursday, and on a Sunday, we were just uh, hanging about uh, in the evening uh, in my, at my uncle's house. And uh, we see in the background, we see big lights and so on and so forth. And, and all of a sudden, a big explosion of roar of the engines. And I looked at Aldo, he looked at me, and we just booked. We followed the noise, and that's when we discovered there was a racetrack there. And that's why... <clears throat> And looking through, you know, we are looking through the cracks of the fence and uh, said, man, these cars, uh, they don't look like Formula One cars, but they look like, it looks like a doable situation. And that's when we felt that I think we might be able to do something about it with ourselves. So that's it. That's how the the seed was planted there to uh, start working toward building one. Incredible. And you start to get attention and
0: go from driving, I guess, a front engine to a rear engine uh, car, and eventually get some attention from folks who know the sport, and you end up in Indiana.
1: Yes, of course. I mean, uh, the objective always said uh, to come through the ranks. You know, in our sport, there are different categories, and 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 uh, and promote yourself from there. It's all about. Uh, like going to school, you know, you go to first grade and, and you want to earn promotion to second grade and, and on and on. So in, in racing, it was the same thing. We were at the, at the bottom of the ladder and, uh, and winning there. Alden and I were both winning uh, in that category. And then I moved on to midgets and then uh, started winning there. Then sprint cars, yes, winning there. And then the next level is at highest level. And um, and so we earned, I earned a ride with one of the top three teams in that uh, the maximum category of the Indy cars, and then you know from there on the career just blossomed. Um, you know I was a national champion uh, in that series in the top series in my rookie year. You know so um, you know I was a very auspicious. Uh, progress you know for us for myself and uh, and that's it that's the that's the, the thing that i'm very thankful about you know in my career i uh, um i i was fortunate to have a lot of help you know and uh, and you can't do it alone you know i would some of the success that i've had to uh, many many people absolutely uh- Can you remember
0: going back to that very first time at Indianapolis Motor Speedway? It is the cathedral for the sport, open wheel racing, as you said, the top shelf in the sport in America and F1 globally. But do you remember what it was like, Mario, that first time when you got behind the wheel
1: at Indianapolis Motor Speedway? Yes, of course. I mean, uh, uh, It's a big thing about uh, becoming Rookie of the Year because uh, that's one award, if you will, that you can only receive the first time there. It's only going to be a rookie one time. And uh, and fortunately, uh, as you said, I had the first opportunity to be in the latest uh, uh, technological race car of a rear engine, uh, which was uh, just sort of that... um, that style of car was just beginning to uh, uh, to surface in, in the IndyCar series, and uh, and again, uh, I was with the right people, the right team, and with the right equipment. And uh, but as you say, as a rookie, yeah, you're in awe, you know. But um, uh, one thing that I learned in my career is that um, uh, you uh, you know, there's always a tendency to be overcome by I think um, uh, a lot of um, grandeur, if you will, when you reach a certain level, and then you find out that that uh, what you need to do is just do what you know that you're doing, not to be taken over by all of this. In other words, you get some of the veterans says, hey, kid, you know where you are now. You know, as you said, this is the cathedral, motorsport and all that. It could just all of that probably can probably uh, make you, you know, just uh Create a lot of tension that you don't need. You just got to proceed and do what you know and feel that degree of confidence. Um, However, there's always in the back of your mind that uh, I wonder, you know, I just wonder if I'll be able to to actually adapt to all these new situations. But uh, at the same time, uh, you have to have that sense of confidence, you know that uh, you know how lucky am I to be here? I'm gonna get it right. You know, you just have to get that, uh, that mindset, you know, that uh, I'm here and I wanna get it right. I'm gonna get it right. And, uh, and that's what it's all about. You know, it's a mix, uh, uh, a lot of, you know, here's another thing, the way to explain it later on in life. You know, like the following years. years later, uh, there's a season, there's a season, there's a championship. Indianapolis is just one of the, you know, the races. It's, uh, yeah, it's the crown jewel, but it's just one race. So the season, you know, I won a championship and all that. Now, like the following year, say the night before Indianapolis, uh, you're walking around or you're coming back from from dinner at 10 o'clock night, just, Mario. Ten o'clock at night. Shouldn't you be? Shouldn't you be in bed? You know, there's a five hundred mile race tomorrow. I said, "Well, no." I said, "I go to bed about eleven, which is about the same time I go to bed for every other race." You you do the same thing. You don't get overtaken, but you know, just this outside hoopla, so to speak. Uh, it's very, very important for drivers, obviously, to just stay even, Steven. You know, don't be overtaken, but uh, uh, some of the pageantry, everything that goes on around it, which is wonderful. It's wonderful for the event, the tradition, because, again, I just said that it's an event, even more than just a race. It's an event. And, and, uh, and it has a tendency, actually, to, to work in a negative way to some drivers that, have a, that think that maybe they should do something different. But if you do something different, it means you're, you're doing something wrong everywhere else. Right, right. The analogy is this, a team that, a football team that earns its way to the Super Bowl. Are you gonna change your plays? Are you gonna change what you did during the season that earned your place there? No, you know, you're gonna do the, you know, whatever work, then you're gonna repeat it, that type of thing. Fantastic.
0: Such a well-told story, Mario, and so true and so insightful. So you're still a young kid then in the 60s, not even 30 yet. By the time you win your first in 69 in Indianapolis, who were some of the other great drivers? I imagine that there's a great competitive spirit amongst you, but also a collegiality amongst the drivers. Were there some of the older drivers who really helped you and I don't want to say took you under your wing is probably not the right choice of words, but who were some of the drivers who you remember fondly from those, those early days?
1: Well, I mean, basically, uh, when I reached that level, uh, some of the icons of IndyCar racing, as we know them, were at their, uh, you know, at the prime of their careers, really. Uh, I arrived there, who was the, uh, you know, the yardstick, so to speak, so to speak, uh, it was AJ Foyt. He was uh, five years my senior already, uh, established national champion. Uh, you had the Unser brothers. Uh, you know, just uh, John Cog, I mean, uh, you name it, you know, uh, again, some of the drivers that have um, uh, made a tremendous name, you know, in our sport. And, um, and again, uh, uh, you can be intimidated by all that, or or, uh, you look at the positive way, you know what, I'm going to learn from these guys. And uh, that's what you got to try to do. I mean, that uh, you got to be observant, and, um, and, and see how did they do that and all of that and and then try to emulate it and have it actually even try to do it even better if you can. Um, going back to your question as far as uh, anybody taking any drivers taking me under their wing no, it doesn't happen. Uh it's, um, it's, it's so selfish the sport um, you know nobody's willing to uh, to share you know and the, the knowledge. Uh, unless, you know, uh, uh, unless it was with me and my own sons and so forth. But uh, it's very difficult to find. The only way you can get some of that knowledge uh, and techniques and so forth, if, uh, you know, late, early on in your career, if you're, you know, in a driving, race driving school and all that, where are you have Yeah. But uh, career-wise at that time, no, I didn't get any help from anybody, you know, and uh, so you have to learn on your own. You have to be, uh, yeah. Um, and, um, and that's really the way it goes. But, uh, you know, here again, you know, uh, there's always somebody better than you out there and, um, and what, and, and if you have any pride or accomplishment, uh, you're going to work harder to try to, you know, be better and make yourself better. And maybe, you know, just, uh, not just emulate, uh, your competition, but be one better, you know, so, uh, that's that's the way, that's the way the game works.
0: You talked about getting help from a lot of people in your career. And as I recall, there was one particular family, Joseph, Andy and Vince, the Granatelli family that played a very big role in your career and in different ways. Uh, can you talk about the Granatellis and what they meant to you?
1: Well, uh, yes. Uh, I had a relatively brief relationship uh, with officially with the Granatellis, but uh, we, but we gravitated because of the fact, you know, that uh, it's sort of Italians and <laughs> type of thing, um, and uh, and I was particularly satisfied and happy to be able to to win Indianapolis for Andy Granatelli because uh, uh, he's one individual that. Uh, all he cared about Indianapolis. I mean, to me, Indianapolis was, I, I took it seriously, but it was another race. Uh, but then you could not tell you, all he, that's all he, he only raced at Indianapolis most of the time until I joined the team. And then, you know, then he was part of the entire team and we won also the championship together. But uh, the bottom line is this, uh, yeah, we, we had a very warm relationship uh, with them. Uh, and, um, and, you know, it doesn't hurt when you're winning races and, uh, and you're accomplishing uh, some of his, his most ambitious goal, uh, which was it, winning Indy. And um, as happy as I was when I crossed the finish line first, I, I look back, I says, I was thinking immediately about Andy. I says, you know what? I'm so happy that I was able to be the one to do it for him. Uh, because I knew, I knew how much it meant to him. Um, and uh, then again, then we go on and win the national championship as well. Had uh, you know, one of the best seasons uh, ever, you know, that year in 69. What, what a great story. And I read somewhere, Mario, that the car
0: that you won in, in 1969 was actually your backup car.
1: Yes, it was, because uh, we arrived there with the uh, absolute state of the art, a uh, new design Lotus I actually was a uh, four-wheel drive. I had you know a lot of uh, aerodynamic features on the car that were quite new, and uh, I was breaking records uh, just in practice. And uh, so uh, we had uh, every reason to feel uh, very confident, you know, that, that we had the, the car. But uh, as as we kept you know, running and a lot of practice, uh, we found out that uh, in the car was too new, you know, to feel that it would be uh, uh, reliable enough uh, to do 500. It was overheating, was doing a lot of things. And then all of a sudden uh, the teammates on the loader side, they had some suspension failures. Three days before qualifying, I had, I was just, you know, doing a, a just a regular run, speed run. And I had, again, I had said fastest time and then the right rear wheel just sheared off. And I crashed big, It was fire. You know, I don't know, I didn't get hurt, you know, more. Uh, but uh, basically it was facial burns and whatever because I jumped out of the car well before even the car almost stopped. And, um, and then that's it, you know, we figured now what? So we had a spare car like that, exactly. But we figured there's no way we want to race that car. So we also entered another car, a car that um, we obviously did not intend to race there. But we won to race before Indianapolis in Hanford, California. We started the season with that car. And uh, it was a car that was built here in the United States. Uh, called a Broner Hawk. And uh, uh, that's it, that's all I had. And uh, I had a day and a half to get the car uh, up to speed properly. And luckily I even put it in the, in the front row in qualifying. And then uh, we had some, some issues in the race because we didn't have time to really you know, do a lot of race running. Uh, but nevertheless, the car lasted for 500 miles And I won, I was uh, more than a lap ahead of uh, Dan Gurney. Uh, And that was a great victory for us because uh, I, you know, I led uh, the major part of the race. Well, my first memories as a young boy uh, of racing
0: were all of you. And I love the epic battles in particular with AJ Foyt and Bobby and Al Unser Uh, and that was a big deal, Mario. Every year, the Indianapolis Five Hundred, and eventually, as television took over as a dominant medium, that was always an extraordinary event. But somewhere in the back of your mind, I guess you always had the idea of Formula One.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. Can no we question. About, can we yeah. talk about that because that was such a wonderful part of your career, culminating in '78 with the championship.
1: For sure, but uh, you know, going back to uh, 1954. And uh, my dream was to b- be a Formula One driver and uh, and you know follow the footsteps of my idol, Alberto Ascari. Um And of course, while I was, you know, in starting my career here in IndyCars and so forth, um, in the back of my mind, I always had, I said, during some time during my career, I hope I can earn a right, I wanna be in Formula One. And uh, in fact, the I tell this story all the time, but I must repeat it since we're on the subject. Um after the 1965 race at Indianapolis, where Jim Clark Lotus finished first, I finished third, but it was rookie of the year. After the banquet, we're saying our goodbyes, I I told Colin Chapman, I said, Colin, someday I would like to do Formula One. And he said, Mario, when you think you're ready. Uh, you call me and I'll have a car for you, and that's how it all started. Three years later, I felt that I was ready because I had won, you know, uh, a lot of the uh, road races in indie cars. I uh, already had won uh, uh, the, the Sebring, you know, then Twelve Hours in sports cars or whatever. I felt that I had enough experience, and that's how my career Formula One started uh, with Colin Chapman. And Lord and behold! You know, my very first race, I put the car on pole next to the world champion, which was uh, Jackie Stewart at the time. So um, here again, you know, it was, uh, I was beginning to pursue my first dreams, you know, my first dream uh, of becoming a race driver. And uh, again, you know, I, uh, uh, things couldn't have happened any, in a better fashion than that. Uh, Colin Chapman was true to his word. And, uh, but, you know, we came together later on, much later on, because uh, um, the, the racing in America was so much more lucrative at the time. And, and I was at the top of that ladder there that uh, I couldn't give up that aspect. So that's why my career continued a little bit later, you know, in Formula One. Uh, after I had won, you know, just at uh, uh, least three championships, and 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 you know, and on and on in the Indy cars.
0: And Mario, to the common eye, the non knowledgeable person about racing, the Indy cars and the F one cars look somewhat similar. Can you talk about the differences between them? and the physicality of what's required to do what you do. Uh, I marvel at these stories and I know you've done it where you raced in one part of the world in one series and the next day in another. Can you talk about comparing the two and overall just the physicality of what it is that you do?
1: Well, you know, it's uh, basically each category has its own rules. You know, the cars are are built based on certain rules. It's like the law, you know. Uh, you know, you have to follow directions and those rules are interpreted, you know, maybe slightly differently by by different uh, engineers like the laws interpreted so different, you know, by, uh, uh, you know, by lawyers type of thing. So the bottom line is this, uh, the Formula One is racing is uh, is, designed and built for racing only on road courses. And um, Indy cars are designed and built to be racing on super speedways, high loading, uh, very high, high top speeds, uh, short ovals, uh, road courses. It's a more of a versatile car. So it's a heavier car. Uh, it's not as nimble on the road courses. Uh, it's not as fast as a Formula One car on road courses because it's heavier. Uh, so, but each animal has, uh, you know, different uh, uh, characteristics to be able to deal with. So, as a driver, you you know, it, it's your job to be able to adapt and understand what that animal wants, and uh, and so that's that's the challenge but it's, uh, it's something that uh, i was always drawn to to be able to to read even the sports prototypes you know and so on and so forth to be able to extract the maximum out of every one of these different cars that are designed to do different things um and so that's the beauty of our sport you know with the uh, the different disciplines and so forth and uh, at the top level if you will and um uh, and again, uh, to me, it was the ultimate challenge. But uh, uh, you know, going back to your question about you know the basically Indy cars and Formula One, uh, to the eye, uh, to some degree, they look the same. You know, obviously, uh, you know uh, the, the details are different, but uh, uh, but the characteristics of the cars, what you have to understand, what you have to adapt to, uh, is much different. Thank you so much, I, and the insights are invaluable. And, and I,
0: uh, I, I didn't realize, I guess there are no F1 races. They did race in more contemporary times at Indianapolis, I think, on a couple of ovals, but for the most part, it is all street racing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but even when they raced at in Indianapolis, they raced on a road course. It was, it was a new design road course around the oval. Okay. Uh, in Yeah, Formula One never raced on the ovals. Well, back in the 50s, uh, you know, it's a long story, in Monza, but, uh, uh, but Formula One is strictly road racing, and um, that's it. I mean, uh, uh, they raced at Indy, but now in the United States, they um, uh, starting this year, uh, they will have two races, uh, one in Miami, one in Austin, Texas, and then next year, uh, they will have three races. Uh, in the United States, which is really huge because, uh, you know, most country, uh, except for Italy, uh, this year is going to have two races, but most countries only have one Formula One race, right. and we will have three.
0: And they're going to Las Vegas, I think, and they're going to do it at night, as I La- recall.
1: Las Vegas, exactly. Amazing, amazing. They'll be, they'll be on the strip.
0: Oh my goodness, that's going to be some spectacle! And what about NASCAR? You had some tremendous success there too, winning their crown jewel, the Daytona Five Hundred.
1: Yes, indeed. Here again goes uh, goes back to um, to be uh, curious, if you will, and uh, and trying to see whether you can master uh, something that's very another category that's very specialized. And uh, I had the opportunity to drive for a factory four team, you know, one of the top teams. And, um, you know, I just things were right. And uh, I was able to get it right. And, and here again, I, I won their, their crown jewel and uh, I led uh, 118 of uh, 200 laps, you know, along the way. I was pretty much in the lead start and middle in the, in the end. So um, I felt that um, I had an extremely good day. I certainly did not look into it, I earned it. You sure did. And at the same time as you're winning
0: races all around the world in all the different series, you're also starting a family. And son Michael eventually becomes a driver. That must've been an extraordinarily special thing for you. And And I wonder, I imagine you were very supportive of him uh, wanting to follow your footsteps, but you know all the dangers involved as a father. I would think that's got to be a
1: little bit of a mixed bag. Well, it is a mixed bag. I call it a double-edged sword, if you will. Um, it's, um, I have, you know, two boys and a girl, you know, Mike, Jeff, and Barbara D. Uh, the, the two boys came first, and uh, Mike was the oldest. Uh, I, I put him in a go-kart at age nine and um and just you know obviously they're uh part of this environment you know there's kids we take them to the races so they you know that they uh this this is our life and so forth and i figure well, put him in a go-kart see if he likes it and uh he took like a duck to water and uh and he, you know, started racing and junior races and, uh, you know, winning and all that. He progressed through series. His brother, Jeff, followed his footsteps. And, um, and he was, you know, younger by a couple of years. And, uh, and, and, but Michael, for some reason, was much more f- luckier than I was, more f- fortunate in so many ways that I even, you know, vis-a-vis like my brother. And, uh, and the bottom line is Michael went on to, uh, to have a phenomenal career in IndyCars, no question. Um, and uh, Jeff uh, has won, he won races, you know, through, uh, you know, through the, uh, the, the Farm Series, you know, up to, to the top level. And, um, but he, he, you know, he, he had a terrible accident at Indianapolis in 1992, which pretty much ended his career um, and uh, so unfortunate, but uh, in general, as you can see, the sport was very, very good to us. So there are so many, uh, so many events. Uh, well, that I could cite very quickly. Um, you know, in nineteen ninety one and ninety two, uh, there were four Andretti's uh, that qualified for the Indy five hundred which had never happened before or since. Four members of the same family in the Indy 500. Um, there was uh, the, the uh, Pocono 500 in 1986, at Pocono, um, there was a supporting race to the 500, to the top level, to the Indy cars. And my son Jeff was on pole position and won that race. Uh, Michael was in pole position for the 500 and I won the 500. Between the three of us, we clean house. And uh, and you know that Michael and I were on, on podium in an IndyCar race 15 times, father and son. And we were first and second five times. And we started on the front row of uh, an IndyCar race 10 times, the two of us. So. As a family, uh, you know, you touched on it. You know, it, um, we experienced, uh, you know, some uh, extremely satisfying, wonderful moments, you know, that uh, always with us. Uh, the sport, again, as cruel as can be sometime, it was, it was cruel to my brother, uh, Aldo, and, and my son, Jeff, but uh, but it also gave us so much, you know, and um, we always look at the, the positive side. Um, and and again, uh, the fact that it was not a you know good for all of us, it sort of a, a, it brings you back to some reality. You know that uh, uh, see how fortunate we've been. You know how blessed we've been. You know to to, to have so much on on the positive side. <laughs>
0: I love how you put that and seeing the positive side, even when things are not always going in your direction. And later, grandson Marco also joins.
1: Yes. Yeah. We're on both sides, both sides of the family, My, between uh, on the Aldo side and mine, they're third generation drivers. Uh, and uh, between the four, there are four and four, there are eight race drivers basically. In, you know, that culminates uh, the, the Andretti family so far. Oh, my gosh.
0: And Mario, along this pathway, you know, you're one of the icons of the sport. Uh, names like Arnold Palmer come to mind uh, of that era. And you're working with companies and brands and doing appearances, making speeches. Was that part of the job? Because it is part of the job. Was that something you enjoyed? Were you annoyed by it? Um, how, how did you make that all work and also manage to keep winning races all around the world?
1: Well, I think you said a key word in the sense that it's, it's part of the job. It's part of uh, what makes everything go around. You know, it's uh, uh, the, the sport cannot survive without a sponsorship. It's a very expensive sport. And, uh, and I've, I've uh, developed Great relationships uh, over my years uh, with uh, different companies that uh, have been so uh, extremely helpful, you know, and been sponsoring our our, our programs. Uh, and they're demanding, obviously, because they're proud to be part of it, and especially if you're winning, that's what they want. And um, yes, uh, uh, we've uh, you know, yeah, we've been part of. A, we have a management firm, you know that. Uh, that uh, handles all of these things. And uh, we, uh, we do work even for uh, the Washington Speakers Bureau and so forth that uh, many times, you know, you're invited to, uh, to give speeches, give a state, make statements, give, you know, whatever. Uh, all these activities and, um, and all my life, I've been part of uh, uh, grand openings or whatever, you know, whatever company you're working with, uh, whatever the promotions are. And um, again, that, that goes hand in hand with everything else that you do. And uh, and I always say, you know, if, uh, if that's really not what I totally enjoy the most, I always say, when you're on the dance floor, whether you like the music or not, you got to dance and might as well enjoy it. So that's the way I look at it. Right, fantastic. So you've received so many
0: honors over the years, streets named after you, festivals, races, Um, But I would think about five or six years ago, you were named an honorary citizen of Lucca back in Italy. And I would think that one meant a little bit more to you than perhaps some of the others.
1: Well, yes, indeed, because uh, here again, we were in a refugee camp in Lucca during a period where uh, after World War II, where we were displaced from our home, because where I was born, uh, was occupied, became occupied by Yugoslavia, our line communism. And so we were refugee in our own country for uh, seven and a half years. And, um, and so at the time, uh, Luca didn't know they were not, the citizens of Luka were not very well informed and they said, who are these people? And here we go, now we come full circle and I became an honorary citizen of, of that city. You know uh, from uh, being a, a refugee so to speak you know to 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 receive that uh you know that distinguished uh, uh you know uh, i don't know recognition if you will uh so yeah it, it, that's the way life is you know you just uh, it's amazing how things come full circle at times uh so yeah this is one of the events just like uh you know here we are i'm uh, um immigrant in America, but uh, I received the title of, of commendatore you know it's like being like a knighthood from the government of Italy you know in, in, in 2006. so um, there's so many things that uh, have been you know so overwhelming to be honest with you, in so many ways uh, but um, but it's that's good that's that's what life can provide you know if you just uh, I guess, if you work hard and you believe, if you will, um, never expect these sort of things to happen. Just like, uh, uh, you know, in your career, uh, when all of a sudden you're nominated for, you know, for uh, uh, to any, any award, you know, like, um, you know, it's so, uh, it's, these are the things that you don't expect, but they happen, you know. And uh, so, again.
0: Well, as you said, you've earned them. So I know you still follow the sport.
1: What's your take on the current state of racing? I feel the sport is really uh, at a good place today. Uh, all the major disciplines, uh, you know, they're armed with, uh, with the product, and which, which means uh, great, solid teams and uh, talent. Just uh, unprecedented almost, in my opinion. Uh, so the future of the sport, uh, the present and the future is very strong. And that that that's a beautiful thing for us, for us to love it so much for, um, yeah. So while we were uh, preparing this, our
0: Great Minds crack research team uncovered something you did fairly recently. And there was a reference to possibly getting back behind the wheel again in 2022. Are you plotting and planning something that we should know
1: about? <laughs> Well, it, <laughs> it's something that uh, uh, we'll wait until exactly it's going to happen, but it's, uh, it's, it's on my bucket list, let's say. And uh, so um, uh, we'll see. It's going to happen later on and uh, closer to fall. You know, so uh, stay tuned. Oh, my goodness. That's fantastic. Well, Mario,
0: thank you so much for doing this. It was an absolute joy to talk to you. You were a hero of mine uh, going back to my earliest remembrances of watching television when Keith Jackson was the voice of the Indianapolis 500 on ABC for so many years. And Chris Economaki, who I know played a role in your career. And yeah. uh, I got, was very lucky many years ago, I had an opportunity to work with IMG when they were trying to bring what was the Marlboro Grand Prix right. the Meadowlands to New right. York City. You'll remember that. Yes, yeah, no, and uh, it was a very interesting negotiation. We were actually successful. There was a headline in the New York Times, March 4th, 1990, and the headline was Look Both Ways, It's Coming. And we had successfully negotiated to do a road course roughly around the World Trade Center, it was West 30, Church and Beasy, And uh, ultimately, between IMG and Philip Morris, and those were the waning days of tobacco sponsorship. They couldn't make it work, and the race ended up in Cleveland. But I work with uh, Bud Stanner and IMG, and Chip Ganassi Racing was part of that team. Oh, wow,
1: yeah.
0: It was a fascinating um, uh, remembrance of my uh, career, in motorsports Uh, uh, does not uh, come anywhere near approaching uh, what the Andretti family has done. It was just one small dalliance in negotiation, but a very memorable one. And uh, I can't tell you what what it's meant to have a chance to have you on Great Minds. And I wish you and the Andretti family only health and further success, but mostly important, health. Thank you.